Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Just a note, my my book, An Ocean Between Them, a novel of redemption, is coming out in just a few days, uh, and you, there's a link to the book page on my website at the Good Grief host page of um, Voice America, so you can order it easily that way, and Please let me know what you think about it. Today I'm welcoming Stephanie Cassatley. When Stephanie was 18, her mother was shot and killed in a store robbery in New Orleans. 20 years later, she found her mother's killer and forgave him while he served a life sentence in the notorious Angola State Penitentiary. It was then that she realized that she had been as much of a prisoner as he was. Her her memoir, Notice of Release, A Daughter's Journey to Forgive Her Mother's Killer, was published by Electio Publishing in 2017. She contributes to the Forgiveness Project, a storytelling project that explores the boundaries, possibilities, and universal nature of forgiveness through individual narratives. She speaks publicly on forgiveness and restorative justice in concert with teachings by renowned peacemakers such as Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, Simon Wiesenthal, and Desmond Tutu. And she also teaches writing at Palm Beach Atlantic University and Endicott College. She holds a master's in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts, and her work has also appeared in journals and anthologies. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. I'm so I'm so glad to have you, and thank you so much for your book. It was uh, a beautiful book, and to me, made um, you know, interestingly, because your story is particularly grievous, um, made forgiveness um, seem possible. And and I always I always do appreciate that when people who've had such a profound experience of needing to forgive, um, your ability to do it inspires other people to to try. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome, and thank you. Saying <laughs> <laughs> uh, it so I, nicely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think the place to start is really for you to share. Uh, for us to get get to know your mother a little bit, your family a little bit, uh, the context into which I appreciated that you were so uh, you attended so much to the context of your family before she was killed, um, because where things happen to us where we are with our contexts uh, ever present, and so I think that's such an important part of your story. Can you? Can you share that and then um, what happened with her, um, you know, when she was killed? Sure, sure. And, you know, feel free to um, redirect me if I don't sort of stick to what you're asking. I think what you're asking is to sort of give give some of the backstory to her life before she was killed. Is that what you're 
Yes, because um, we don't we don't grieve in a vacuum. We grieve particular people in particular circumstances. And I was so aware of um, of your life before that event impacting how how that affected you. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my mother was a, um, she was an interesting person. She was a mix between, um, you know, she was, she was from New Orleans. Um, she was not wealthy. She came from a, a family that um, I would pretty much say was, was poor. Her father did not know how to read or write. Um, he was a farmer. Uh, she grew up in the, sort of in the bayou uh, outside of, of um, New Orleans, really, but, um, you know, Italian immigrants and, you know, one of four sisters and, um, you know, they, they were poor. I mean, they, and they were, you know, they were almost like, um, you know, right out of the grapes of wrath, if you really want to be literary about it. Uh, and so, um, you know, she kind of came from nothing, but then she rose through um, a series of, of, you know, beautiful things in her life. She married my father, who was uh, Latin, and she... Um, Left, you know, Louisiana, and 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 we, you know, my my brother and I were born, and we grew up in South America, which was, you know, a, a complete departure from where she had grown up. And she, you know, she became the wife of a, of an international businessman, and um, you know, rose to the occasion. And you know, um, when I think back on her, I always thought of her as as just being this incredibly kind, sort of elegant. Um, but simple woman. I mean, she was not a complicated person and, and, um, you know, always saw the best in people and gave the best of herself and, um, you know, just kindness. And, uh, and through a series of, you know, really difficult life circumstances, she w- wound up later in life, um, um, alone raising, you know, my brother and myself and, um, you know, went back to being poor. She had no, no financial means again. And, uh, which put her in this store that uh, was where she was ultimately killed. She wound up having to go from this, you know, really beautiful life as a expatriate's wife to working in a um, packaged liquor store on the outskirts of, of Louisiana. So, you know, she she really kind of had this yo-yo effect of, you know, um, in terms of her financial state in her life, and and it was there that she was killed, and. Um, it was a random act the night that she was killed. It was it was a store holdup. Um, she, she was closing down the store. It was actually my uncle's store that that he was going to give her upon retirement, and she was learning the ropes of it. And as she was, you know, checking out and closing the store down, uh, two men entered, held her at gunpoint, uh, asked her for the money. She gave them all the money, and then she uh, began pleading for her life and fell to her knees to, to plead and and the one of the store um, one, one of the 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 guys that had come in you know pulled her back up and and um, backed out of the store and um, shot her and she died instantly right there and then they took off um, joined a third guy who was the driver of the car and you know that was it. That was that was the end right there. And I was a freshman in college at the time, um, completely unaware of what was going on. My brother was living in New Orleans at the time when it happened. 
So, you know, we were all blindsided by it, um, and it, w- it was a completely random act, uh, you know, completely unexpected. But it was, it was on the tail end of a, a pretty hard stretch for her. So, um, you know, she'd, she'd had a rough couple of years, and, and this was, you know, a, just a really sad, bad ending. Um, so a lot of heartache, you know. <laughs> yes, and the human ba- uh, brain sort of tends to connect things if your parents hadn't divorced, if this, if that, she wouldn't have been there. And of course, right. that has nothing to do with it, really. But no, I, I, mean, I am aware happened. that our brains um, do that, you know, mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, and I wondered um, if that affected then your relationship with your father, uh, initially, it did um, very much so. Uh, initially, you know, there was a lot of blame, not only from myself but also from my family. Um, but uh, and I'm sure he took a lot of it on himself. Frankly, I, I don't think mm-hmm. he um, was so callous that he didn't take some of that blame, even if he didn't speak it. Um, but initially, it did. But then eventually. Um, I came around because I realized he was my only parent left, and uh, I needed family. Uh, I wanted a relationship with with him, even though I was, you know, angry and hurt. Um, and we did a lot of reparations in the remaining time he lived. He, he, you know, he he eventually died himself of cancer um, a few years later, and uh, you know, I don't. You know, I don't. I'm not a, a medical person, and I'm and I'm not. You know, <laughs> and I don't believe in um, you know divine retribution either. But I, I do think that you know some of what he took in from the whole experience must have been really stressful for him. And so, you know, in the end, he and I did make peace, which is why I partly why I did give a lot of the backstory because I was able to finally you know have the father that I always wanted through some dialogue and through some um, you know just some honest honest conversations. Uh, but it took a long time, you know, it took a long, long time. And um, everything leading up to that was was extremely painful. And I'm aware that that wasn't the case for all of your siblings. Um, they didn't have that experience, which you invited with him, as I, as I read it. Uh, you, you invited those conversations, you went to see him, you know, uh, you, you kept kept in, I guess I'd say, um, which I imagine was very relevant to you and he being able to get that far uh, before his death. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because I don't, I mean, part of me thinks that that was just a necessity on my part. I was, you know, I was young. I I needed a parent. I, you know, um, I think I just was um, I don't know. I was alone, and I just I felt exhausted and tired, and I just thought, you know, maybe we can find a new way. And so I asked questions. You know, I I, um, I dug in with him. You're right. Uh, you know, I remember distinct conversations with him, real conversations that I had never had with him. You know, in all the years that that I was younger, and that you know things were turbulent. Some of the best conversations we had were toward the end when when he had cancer, and we were able just to talk and. Um, they were rich and real, and and even if they were painful, at least they were honest. And b- being able to see him in that light for the first time was 
was hugely helpful in my being able to sort of forgive and let go. You know, I have a, a real interest in kind of the seeds. I, I watched this in myself. What what inclined me towards uh, the experience I had of changing so much after my during during my wife's illness and after her death. Um, and I can see that there was preparation for that, even though I didn't expect when she was first sick that I could grow in any way. It was just going to be horrible. But um, I somehow imagine that having uh, experience you you felt was positive with him might have opened up your mind to forgiveness in general. Do you think so? I, I definitely do. In fact, there's a chapter in my book called Training Ground, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is, um, I don't know if you got that, but but the training ground for forgiving my mother's killer which and I'm not comparing the two in any way, but the training ground for learning how to open my heart up to forgive, to maybe to see a different side of the story, um, was with my father. And and to be honest with you, um, my father's life, you know, which is why I gave so much backstory. Um, he had so many um, trials and struggles in his life um, prior to becoming a father. That um, and I love this too. There's sort of this Buddhist belief that says hurt people hurt people. Yes. And, um, I believe that to be true. I, I don't think he was able to, in his life, work through a lot of the pain and suffering he had experienced with his own father. And and I think that it, you know, it sort of traveled to the next generation. And I, I just, I think that at some point with my own father, I just, I wanted an end to it. You know, I felt like, and, and even if it wasn't conscious, like you were saying with your with your wife, you you just want a better way. And so maybe you're you're a little more open or vulnerable to um, to try something, I guess, or to or to at least understand. And and for me, at least, so much of it was just uh, being able to ask questions and understand. I mean, I had a lot of questions, like why, you know, why did all this happen? Why, you know, why did our family yes. fall apart? Why, why was she killed? You know, what was the guy who killed her? What was going on with him? You know, I mean, uh, and maybe it was just a matter of wanting to make meaning out of something so senseless and and painful. Absolutely. And the other thing that really um, stuck out to me was that uh, your mother, your father, and the person who killed your mother all had a lot to grieve and no no support to do it, uh, as it seemed to me. That's um, yeah, yeah. And um, I do think that that's what the harm is. It's not just that something happens always. That's ha- that that hurts but it doesn't necessarily lead to a damaging future. Um, but uh, in my mind, it often does if there's no way to actually go through that, which you, of course, did for 20 years. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, well, I, I have to say, I, um, I, I don't, you know, I say in the book that I, I did not seek any kind of counseling for seven years after she died, and uh, and that was a mistake because, it wasn't until, you know, I, I, I got some counseling that I started to sort of deconstruct not only her her death, but just her life and everything preceding it. And deconstructing it, as hard as it was to go into that place, really was like putting the puzzle together. And um, mm. um, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I would like people to get a taste of the voice of your book, um, and I wondered if you 
could read the the part from your prologue. Um, my mother's sure. desk changed. Yeah, that. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so, yeah. Okay, my mother's death changed every predetermined notion I had about the world and what it meant to feel safe. It informed everything thereafter, including intimate relationships, motherhood, career, and friendships. Before she died, I had always thought that murder was something that happened in the news, in faraway places, to other people, and that I was somehow immune to such ugly things. I was mistaken. To this day, I cannot visit New Orleans without feeling the weight of losing my mother. She's in the scent of every flowering magnolia, the moist air that drapes the city, the soulful jazz of the French Quarter, the rich taste of red beans and rice, and the steady current of the Mississippi River. She's everywhere, yet nowhere, an elusive shadow. Like living on two different continents, my life before and my life after her death bore no resemblance to each other and it has taken me most of my life to adjust to living in the second. In my 40s, I realized that in order to continue the life I was trying to create with my husband and two daughters, I had to go back and unearth my mother and father's stories, as well as the story of my mother's killer, in order to understand what had happened and why. Years of avoiding the topic of her death, even her killer's name, had not abated my nightmares and anxiety. Although satisfied that justice had been served, I wondered how much had been gained. Still in so much pain, there was no way to fill the crater that her death had left in my life and nowhere to turn for peace. Just before her killer died in prison in 2000, in an act almost as difficult and mysterious as her death, I reached out and forgave him. It was then that I realized that I had been as much of a prisoner as he was. I feel that's that's so powerful that the sense of um, being imprisoned partly as a result of not grappling with or facing what happens in our lives. Uh, I know you're connecting it with forgiveness, but I also connect it with that, that sense of trying to get away from it, which in my experience doesn't seem to work. Yeah, it's interesting. I think forgiveness is kind of counterintuitive because I think in forgiving, we sometimes think that we're giving something to someone else that maybe they don't deserve or that we don't want to give. Or that, um, But it's actually, um, strangely, it, it really has almost nothing to do with the perpetrator or the person who hurt us. It has much more to do with ourselves and and our ability to let go of you know, of hanging on. I mean, we're in prison when we're hanging on to the hate and, and, and to, to the hurt and to the, to the vengeance. I mean, I, I spent years having dreams about what I would do if I met him and how I would take him out and why he didn't get the death penalty and, and um, you know, just you know this, what if he came after me. Stephanie, this really deserves so much more time, and it's time for a break. So let's okay. let's come come back to this idea of what forgiveness actually is, and okay. and what it isn't, and all of those questions which you illuminate so well in your book. And listeners, you can find links to my web, website, social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, and you can find Stephanie Casatley at www.stephaniecasatley.com. That's S T E P H A N I E 
C-A-S-S-A-T-L-Y.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighouse for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Stephanie Cassatley, author of Notice of Release, about uh, her process of coming to forgive the person who killed her mother. And before the break, Stephanie, we were just beginning to talk about the whole concept of forgiveness, which I certainly spend a lot of time in my office talking about that because it's so from my view, so misunderstood. And I thought in your book, you you uh, laid it out so well. I appreciated that you started with what it isn't because um, there are so many misunderstandings. Could you talk some about how you see forgiveness and uh, what, what the gift of it for you is? Sure, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it all starts with that for me. Um, uh, you know, because I, in my mind, you know, not that I knew what I was going through at the time, but after the fact, I looked back at the process and realized that there was, in fact, a process, and the very first step of that process is, is having some 
sort of understanding of what forgiveness is. And in my own story, when uh, when I first sort of approached that subject, it was um, a friend, uh, a woman who now lives in California, said to me, what do you think forgiveness is? And I could not answer the question. Um, but what it felt like to me at that point was like I was letting him off the hook, that I was saying it was okay, that I somehow was, you know, diminishing the horror of what had actually happened. And, but, you know, I kind of just stumbled around with, with what, what, what her question was. And, and she said, well, how about if we back into it? But how do we say what it's not? And then she led me through it. And she said, how about if we say that it's not lesser justice? You know, it's not wanting him out of prison. It's not forgetting what happened. Uh, it's not condoning what he did. You know, it, it's, it's, the act was, was horrible and it, nothing about it was okay. Um, forgiveness is not easy. Um, it's not quick. And she also pointed out that it's not necessarily any kind of... Um, it doesn't mean that you have to have a relationship with this person or that you have to continue anything with them. You know, it, it can be, you know, just a, a one-shot deal. And so uh, what, what we kind of came up with in terms of the definition of forgiveness, which really was a departure from how, how I had always thought of it, was that basically it's nothing more than um, no longer wishing ill or seeking revenge on the person who hurt me. And uh, it essentially sort of untethers me from him and enables me to have a different... Uh, future than the past. Um, I, I'm releasing him. And so, but, you know, it does require me no longer to, to sort of wish the worst or, um, you know, desire horrible things towards him. And so when I heard that definition, it really, it kind of was an aha moment for me because, you know, I up until that point, I had thought, you know, there's just no way I can do this. Ah, uh, yes. Sort of uh, felt a little more tenable, I guess. Well, and it's uh, it, one of my teachers, Stephen Stephen Levine, used to say, "Why would you forgive the act? That would be crazy. Acts are not right. forgivable, uh, but people are. Uh, so that's how I connect with what you're saying too. That there are human beings who are." lost, angry, all kinds of different reasons we hurt each other, unthinking, uncaring, whatever it might be, that's sort of yeah. different from what it is they do. Different, You can differentiate those two. Yes, I've heard a very similar statement where, where there are no such thing as monsters, they're just monstrous acts. You know, I find thing. that a comforting notion, actually, <laughs> but I know that not everyone does. No, and you know, and I mean, I have to qualify this by saying, you know, had my circumstances been different, or the situation, or my story, and I'm, you know, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a priest, I'm not a rabbi, I'm not, you know, I'm nothing more than a person who who had an experience, and, and I realize that there's a lot of people out there with incredibly, you know, horrible stories who are struggling, and you know, had my story been different, you know, I I don't know, maybe I I would see somebody as a monster, but in my particular case. I was able to n- not see him as a monster, but to see, and, and especially once I started to learn a little bit about him, which goes back to that idea of sort of trying to understand and explore um, the other side of the story, you know, which I had been unwilling to do for 20 years. You know, there was, yeah, 
there there was a biographical detail about him that resonated with some uh, some ways of thinking I have. Um, he was gay and young, and of course I know since since I'm a member of that community how frequent it is that young people are are severed from everything, uh, their family, their community, and they're kind of um, left to sort it out on their own and some people really um, fall by the wayside uh, in that uh, in that attempt to become mature they 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 don't have what they what they need to get there I don't know how big a part that was of his story but it did stand stand out to me that's interesting yeah I mean I think it was a um it might have been, you know, a confluence of different things. I mean, I think there was there was maybe that, and then you know maybe an, a, a father or a mother who d- were not accepting. Um, there might have been like a learning, I, I, you know, from from speaking to his mother later on, which you know sort of is the epilogue of the book. I learned, you know, that that the problems were there early on, and and I, you know, I don't know, but I, I remember, you know, I, I think we're living in a different generation where. Maybe parents are a little more uh, receptive to getting some sort of help for children that seem to be acting out or, or learning disabilities or even mental illness, um, at least more so than it used to be. I mean, I get the impression that this guy that killed my mother, who, who I call Nathan in the book, um, I get the impression that they just had no idea what to do with him. And when he started acting out... Um, it, w- it was a behavioral problem, and eventually it just led him. And, and, and I think there was also a predisposition towards addiction. You know, mm-hmm. you put all those things together. Um, kind of it, a perfect kind of like storm. A perfect storm. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I'd like people to, to hear a little bit, you know, because we're talking about facing up to what's happened. In order to get to the place where you were thinking about what led him to that, you had to face the event itself and there's a beautiful part of your book that that talks about that camera obscura uh and i love i love the description of that um using a darkened box with a convex lens for projecting the image of an external object onto a screen inside an old photographic technique but i think that just sort of describes the feeling that one might have in your circumstance um i'm sure it it does for you since since uh that's the image you used but would you share that part of the book sure yeah that's um chapter 17 camera obscura and uh, thank you for defining that because a lot of people don't know what that means but um my exterior surroundings, okay, let me just say also that I, this is when I went back to college. So this was after the funeral, um, you know, after the shock of everything. And, you know, I go back to this life in a different state, you know, that I had just left a week before and everything was different. You know, I, when I went to, you know, when I went home for the funeral, I left college and then I went back to college. So this is coming back to college. Mm-hmm. My exterior surroundings at school bore no trace of what had happened Classes, friends, parties, and everything else was the same. Unless I brought it up, it was as if the event had vanished into thin air, erased from the photograph with no physical proof. But my interior landscape bore the evidence, for it was entirely different, stripped of all familiarity and knowledge of the terrain. I'd been blindfolded and dropped in a foreign land with no roadmap or ticket to get home. 
I knew I had to try to resume a normal life, but normal was a term I no longer understood. Like fumbling blindly inside the black box, I managed to attend classes most days, fitfully sleeping other ones entirely away. Often confused, I'd forget to study for an exam or go to my part-time job at a fancy restaurant where I was a hostess. Some days I teetered on the edge of insanity when hysterical laughter would turn to an uncontrollable crying jag or I'd wake up thinking it had all been a nightmare. The usual college drinking made it worse. I had trouble knowing where my dreams ended and reality began. My dreams offered convoluted alternatives for what had really happened. In one of them, my mother called on the telephone to tell me she had been in a mental institution and and, and she was finally coming home. In my dream, I sobbed with relief. I sobbed so hard that I woke myself up, unsure if I'd really received such the call. Just before I picked up the telephone to call her number to see if it had all been a terrible mistake, it all came crashing down on me, and I suddenly felt like I weighed a 1,000 pounds again. Disoriented and exhausted, I wondered if a mental institution wasn't where I belonged. Like the reflection of the camera obscura, everything seemed an illusion. You know, again, that really speaks to a lack of support, doesn't it? To be in this environment where there's, where what's happened is not ex- acknowledged. There's nothing offered to you to, mm-hmm. um, to to help with what you're going through, which is kind of um, astounding in such a intense experience that you're having right that that you're sort of expected to just go go along being a brand new college student and it's it's rather miraculous to me I've talked to other people who've had early loss uh, around college time and many of them didn't make it through yeah Um, yeah I I don't know if you went straight through or had to take a break anywhere along there or you know how you how you um manage that, um, being so alienated and alone. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because, you know, it was a nice university, but uh, no one reached out and said, you know, how are you doing? Um, I mean, the only um, consciousness they had um, was when I went and said, look, I have, to under- I, have to, I have to take a lighter load because I was in a pre-med program at the time and I just I couldn't keep up. Uh, I couldn't concentrate, you know, I just, I was just on overload. So I ended up dropping the pre-med major and, and for one semester dropping courses that, um, you know, dropping down to a half, half load. And thankfully I had come in with a few extra classes. So it all evened out in the end, but, but back to what you said before, I mean, I, sometimes when I think back on my college years, I feel like I was kind of hanging by my fingernails. <laughs> It's a sleepwalking practically yeah sleepwalking. I could imagine yeah. and, and on top of it you know I did not have a supportive uh, I didn't you know no one in my family said you know let's get some therapy in fact there was um, sort of a I was dissuaded from doing that because I was sort of told that all therapists are crazy people and you know it's, it's not going to help you and um, so I, I listened to that stupidly and did not seek help which um, I eventually did seven years later, which was in a way sort of my lifeline, really a life preserver um, had I not done that. Um, and I'm, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had done it sooner and sort of gone against, you know, the, the flow of the family. But unfortunately, uh, I just didn't have the strength to do it. 
Well, I think you're describing something there, too, though. You said in one interview I listened to of yours, you know, the timing is the timing, or maybe it was even in the book. Um, It has to unfold the way that it does um, Mm -hmm. on the timetable. Grief has its own timetable, I guess. Um, and, And I do notice that my timetables are different as someone who's grieved before. Grief is not different. I still have to do it. But mm-hmm. um, I, um, I, I allow things sooner because I've already had the experience of them being helpful. So I can, yeah. I, I can well imagine that, you know, brand new college student trying to launch developmentally, trying to leave your family, um, that it would slow down kind of, uh, uh, I guess, an emotional return uh, by going to therapy or something. It would yeah, have been surprising if that happened, yes? Yes. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I, you know, I completely agree. And, you know, in retrospect, I can say this, but at the time, you know, I thought I was doing okay. I, you know, was moving on with life. I was, you know, going to college parties. You know, I thought I was doing the best I could for, you know, given the circumstances. And, and like you said, time, you know, the time is the time. Um, you know, thankfully I did eventually find my my way to it. Um, And, you know, again, writing this book was hugely uh, impactful in that way. Also, just to, you know, sort of deconstruct the whole story and put it all together. And, um, and, and, you know, the other piece that I find kind of interesting, too, is that one of the things that prevented me from, uh, I guess, maybe coming to any sort of place of forgiveness or healing was that I was spared the trial. So I actually didn't know his name for 20 years. And I, I think in some respects that, um, that was delayed, you know, my healing and, and, and ability to sort of look at the situation. I think if I, if I had given a name to him and maybe, or perhaps if I had sat to the trial, I had a, I did a talk at a library uh, about a year ago and there was a prison warden there who listened to my story and, and she listened and listened, and at the end she came up to me and she said, you know, the thing that's really unusual about your story, because she's, you know, has been in and out of courtrooms and, and, um, and, and in prisons, she said, you didn't sit through the trial. She said, I think if you had sat through the trial, you would have started the process much sooner. If you had seen him face-to-face, if you had learned his name, it, you know, if you had confronted the demon uh, earlier on, as opposed to, you know, um, never having done that, it you know, or waiting 20 years to learn his name, you, you, you definitely delayed your process. And I thought that was interesting because I, I had never thought of it that way. That's interesting. I want to talk more about that because I could also imagine it the other way for some people that sitting through the trial would, and I've, you know, seen news stories like this, would, would intensify uh, the sense of revenge that does happen for some people too. So she may yeah. have been thinking of you in particular, that had you sat through the trial. I don't know. But I'd, I'd love your thoughts on that when we come ho- come back from our next break. Okay. Um, uh, listeners, you can find me at weatheringrief.com as well as the Good Grief Host page. That's my website. And to find Stephanie Cassatley, go to www.stephaniecassatley.com. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Stephanie Casatley, whose book, Notice of Release, uh, chronicles her process um, coming to the place of being able to offer forgiveness to the man who killed her mother. And... um, Let's let's kind of talk about that. I, I wanted to emphasize that there's no timing because I noticed that especially with um, traumatic death, um, you need that time to grieve. Uh, you you laid out the um, you know kind of stages of forgiveness if you will um defining forgiveness exploring the story recognizing a shared and perfect humanity discovering compassion offering forgiveness and reestablishing or releasing the relationship i liked that arc and i think i would w- put something before that which might be grieving 
mm-hmm. um, that I've noticed that yes, it's hard absolutely. to offer that if you've if you've bypassed grief, if you've tried to ward it off. And uh, I guess that would apply to you, wouldn't it? That uh, you'd you'd had ways to grieve. You had, in fact, eventually had some witness for your grief. I don't think it can entirely be done in isolation. And that's probably a relevant thing to getting to the point where you could do what you did. But can you share with people um, how it came to you to begin to um, grapple with that process of forgiveness and how that unfolded in the end? Sure. Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right because, you know, people sometimes say to me, well, how long does it take? And it's like, <laughs> well, I, I don't know what it, t- how it, I think it takes what it takes. And for me, it took 20 years. Um, and, and, you know, in some respects, I feel like, um, you know, the same experience that sort of um, was the impetus for me to consider the possibility of forgiveness. If it had happened 10 years earlier, I don't even think I would have, I, I don't think I would have been receptive. I, I probably wouldn't even have heard it. But what it, what it was essentially was a meeting uh, at a school that we were looking at. Uh, we were interested in sending our girls to this little school and, and, you had to sit through a meeting, and one of the people that got up and spoke during this meeting was a, a man who was a prison minister, and he was talking about his work in this prison ministry. And um, you know, it's a faith; it was a faith-based school that my children went to. And as he started speaking about the work he was doing with these prisoners um, and forgiveness, you know, helping them to forgive themselves, essentially, which was a whole other piece of forgiveness. Um, I found my blood pressure shooting up and just feeling so agitated and upset and thinking, why? What are the, these people don't deserve forgiveness. I mean, they've done horrible, egregious things. Why would you spend your time or energy, you know, working with these people? And, and so it really ignited something in me, not for the positive at that point. And, um, mm. But the interesting thing about that meeting, you know, and I had a sort of an emotional, I call these, these things over the years emotional blitzkriegs. <laughs> sort of like where where emotion would just creep up on me and blindside me and hit me and I'm sure you're familiar with this you know you don't Absolutely. see it coming and then like a simple thing like a smell or a, a picture or a, a person's comment just sends you off the deep end and it brings back all these memories you know of something and and that's what that was for me it was an emotional blitzkrieg but but after that meeting I noticed uh, and I really couldn't even say what happened you know the poor man came up to me after and said well what just happened because he saw me sort of crying in the back of the room. And I, I couldn't even engage with him. I just said, I'm not even sure what just happened. But mm. I did notice uh, for weeks and months after that meeting that every single thing I listened to, whether it was on the radio, on the television, reading in a book, you know, everything sort of circled back to forgiveness. And, and it was almost like somebody had changed the dial on my radio huh. um, to tune me into that topic. And um, And that's where it all began was this idea of, what is forgiveness? And it, you know, I started grappling with it at that point. Um, that was the impetus. And then, you know, I started having conversations with people, um, thinking about it, reading up on it. Um, and then I started becoming very curious about him as a person, and I called the Louisiana um, State Attorney General's office where the case had been tried. And since I had missed the whole trial, I actually ordered all the transcripts because I decided I want to 
wanted to find out what had happened in the trial. I mean, and I got all the newspaper articles, and you know, I I, I went back into the story um, painfully. I mean, it was almost like it was happening for the first time in some respects because right. But there was a curiosity, and and the the part that's interesting to me was sort of the curiosity and the obsession that took hold of me. Uh, and I don't exactly know where that came from. I mean, you might have a better idea than I do, but there, for the next couple of years, it was almost like an obsession. Like, who is he? What happened? You know, yeah. why did he do it? What's his story? Uh, and that curiosity and obsession was what drove the process. And it was through that that I uncovered who he was and what took him to that point. And, it, and then, you know, in uncovering that was where I was able to sort of see him as a pitiful person, like what kind of a life did he really have? You know, as bad as my life had been, I had a better life than he did. (laughs) You know, you know, I wondered, I mean, I don't think there's one answer to the question you're asking. What, what, if I, if I could bottle being ready to face what's difficult and, and make meaning and move forward with it, I would, I would have a different economy in my life. You know, it's, um, it's very mysterious in some ways, but I was so aware in your book that you had actually um, gone on with your life, you know, a stable family life, children, but I could imagine that it would have been hard to touch that more directly when your kids were very, very young, mm-hmm. uh, that that somehow your primary goal might have been just to stay alive and yeah. not to not to dredge up. Uh, I don't know if that's the case, but it's what came to my mind when I was reading the book. No, you're absolutely right. Um, that is exactly. I mean, it was almost like I was in autopilot. I mean, it's not that I didn't enjoy them, and but um, every every event, my wedding, you know, my, the children's first day of school, you know, every event was was. It was it was joyous, but it was incredibly sorrowful because I just, you know, I felt her absence like it was everywhere, and um, yes. and I did not touch the topic with my children for many years because uh, every time it came up, I would get a lump in my throat, and also I didn't want to frighten them. I didn't really want them to grow up in a world where they feared these kinds of things, and and so in many respects, um, it laid buried, um, you know, until my mid forties when this whole event happened and which is actually sort of the impetus for the book I did not really write the book to write a book or to share it with other people or to help anyone else although I'm delighted and thrilled and and grateful that it has become that but it was really more uh, a desire to to document the account for my girls so that when they grew up and got older god forbid something happened to me as I knew could you know based on my own experience that they would have a they would have a record of the story and then you know, I discovered a love of writing, and like one thing left to the next, led to the next, and, um, and grief. Here we are, grief but, works like that. I feel. <laughs> yeah, it opens doors like you. It right? opens doors <laughs> if you if you if you open the door, it opens other doors that appears. Yeah. Um, that and sense of serendipity. <laughs> yeah, and and speaking of that, uh, I was very very moved by the actual timing of you reaching out to Nathan. And um, when that happened in in his life, um, could you read the um, the part of your book that uh, follows the pr- phone call you had with a prison 
chaplain about Nathan? Sure. Yes, yes. Um, there was a, a prison chaplain named Father Lebov who facilitated um, the interaction because, interestingly, prisoners have a lot of rights and protections um, that, that you might not realize they have. And so, uh, you know, I was not allowed to just sort of have an f- interaction with, with um, Nathan directly, but I, I went through um, this, this prison chaplain. And, and so this is following... Um, having forgiven Nathan, um, and this is, a, this is um, you know, just my, my perceptions of what happened. Um, of all the scenarios I'd imagined, it never crossed my mind that I'd be forgiving a dying man. In that moment, I realized that things were unfolding just as they were intended, according to a plan over which I had no control. I was merely an instrument of something far greater than myself. Trembling, with tears streaming down my cheeks, I found myself smiling, even laughing. I'm sure that Father Lebeau heard the muffled yet uncontrollable sound of my simultaneous laughter and crying. I felt self-conscious about my conflicting emotions, mostly the laughter, wondering how I could be laughing at the news of a dying man. Was I that angry and vengeful? But it was something entirely different. It was the realization that for the first time since 1980... I no longer felt anger or vengeance, that I had nothing to fear, and that I had been blindly working towards this moment for 20 years, fighting it all the way. Is this forgiveness and peace, I wondered? And so there I sat, not knowing what to say. My clothes were soaked as in a baptism, from perspiration and tears. I asked Father Lebeau if he thought Nathan would be seeking a pardon to be released from prison. No, he said, after so many years, the men in his camp are his only family, and he wishes to live out whatever time he has left with them. Still at a loss for words, I thanked Father Lebeau and hung up. I sat at my desk and allowed the tears of relief and maybe even sadness. Then, as if a window had been opened, a cold air blew in. The hair on the back of my neck prickled. I felt my mother sitting next to me for the first time since she died not in a dream at the bottom of a canyon or in the distance, but right next to me with her arms wrapped around me. This is what she had always wanted. You know, there's, there's that experience you had of feeling her there. And then there's, there's what I was thinking about that, which is that when we kind of do the hard work there's a sense of presence that begins to happen with the person we've lost that seems different than when there's still a lot to grapple with Uh, that's what that that passage makes me think about and I was also very just uh, I've I've done several um, several programs on on uh, prisons hospice in prisons in particular uh, in the course of having this show, and that yeah, died in uh, hospice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of work afoot to tr- uh, train other inmates to offer the services, which I think speaks to what uh, you found out about him. That that's basically that was basically his family. Stephanie, I really want to thank you for being here. I've enjoyed the conversation. I think it's such an important conversation that. Uh, you know, both that forgiveness is possible and that we can't make it happen. 
<laughs> that it that it yeah. has to come on its own time. But uh, it's powerful that you were able to bring that into your own life. So thank you for sharing that with my listeners. Well, thank you, Cheryl. If you if you want to find Stephanie in her book, go to stephaniecasatley.com. Next week, I'll have Heidi Connolly, who found her passion playing music to promote healing after her husband's death. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.